This is Podco Media Networks. Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Rashad Tabakawala, Senior Advisor to Publicist Group, and he most recently serves as the Chief Growth Officer and Chief Strategist. He's the author of the recently released Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. Welcome to the deep dive, my friend. Thank you. Welcome to all your listeners and thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. You know, my listeners might be used to me saying that to every guest, but that's only a reflection of all the guests being really very interesting. But when I found out about your book, I was on Twitter and just sort of doing what I do, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. It kind of came up in my feed. And then I went to your website. And I remember this because I was in the airport on my way to Mexico because I was doing some workshops in Mexico City. So I remember this moment very plainly. And once I read about your book, it hadn't come out as yet, but it was scheduled. And the focus of what it was going to be about, this idea of restoring soul to business, I knew that we had to have a conversation. I really want to start with what was your incentive to writing the book? I mean, you're someone who is a mathematician. You've worked in technology for all of your career, the majority of your career. Technology has been a focus of that. What kind of set you on this path to write this book? There was really two or three different motivations, but broadly, the first was I was beginning to recognize more and more companies were focusing on the data parts of their business and less on what I call the story part of their business. So in the book, I basically put forth the hypothesis that for a business to be successful, it has to combine the spreadsheet and the story. And the spreadsheet is the math and the data. The story is the culture, the talent, the purpose. And successful companies, I thought, combine the two. What I was beginning to see because of the rise of Google, the rise of digital, the rise of data, the rise of financial markets saying, let's get something done quickly, the focus was more and more on businesses tilting towards the data element of it. I said, why is it tilting that way? And if it's tilting that way, is it good? Because maybe tilting that way is fine. But what I realized was there were three downsides, which were very significant. The first was more and more employees of these companies were getting disengaged. Because if everything is done by math, then what exactly role do you play? Which is number one. Number two, that there were massive negative impacts on society. So as companies focused on consumer, we began to have sort of the downside of, let's say, a Facebook. We weren't thinking about a citizen. Facebook's a good company, but if it only focuses on how do you make money and doesn't realize that it's no longer an advertising operating system, it's a society operating system, as are YouTube and all the others, you begin to have an issue. But the third and most important, which is, okay, there's society negatives if they become very data-driven. There are talent-driven, but people say, who the hell cares? So I needed to use data to prove that data plus story was better than data. 
And that very simply was that companies that combined them did better than companies that only tilted towards the left. So the examples I give is, let's look at a Southwest versus United. Let's look at a Costco versus a Walmart of two years ago. Walmart has changed a lot under the new CEO, but of two, three years ago. Let's see a company that is becoming short-term focused, like let's say an IBM versus an Adobe. And you're beginning to realize that actually combining the story and the spreadsheet, which is what I call the soul of the business, is good for talent, good for society, and good for shareholders. So that's why I wrote the book. It's interesting as you were laying out your thesis, you mentioned this idea of financial markets, Wall Street, how those forces as sort of pushing a shareholder narrative, I'll use those as like the proxy industry, has become such a major component of other businesses as they develop. I have a finance background. I used to work at Goldman. And once I left and started doing the things I'm doing now, I would talk to clients about what I used to call this Wall Streetification of business, where the focus of Wall Street, the culture of Wall Street became endemic of any number of other businesses. So when I left business school, my classmates who went to Procter & Gamble and went to Coke and went to Kraft and any number of different the same marketing types of organizations were very different from the Wall Street people, you know, of which I was one. Now it seems that everyone, with some exceptions, kind of talks the same language, walks the same walk. I say, if you're talking about ROI, you're not talking about culture. And I'm curious as to where did you start to really see that as a, being a tectonic shift in your business? There are a few things. The one thing that I was seeing broadly outside of my business was folks like Larry Fink of BlackRock, who I mentioned in the book, mm -hmm. and others basically saying, hey, you know what? We have to think about stakeholders and not just shareholders. And oddly, focusing on stakeholders actually will help shareholders. It was basically, we weren't trying to get the financial markets to think differently. We were just trying to get them to think a little longer. They'd still make a lot of money. That was one. In my business, the focus really was marketers were forgetting that in most cases, there's no way a marketer can separate themselves through data. Data is extremely important, but it's like electricity. Do you hear of companies today saying they are a better company because of the way they use electricity? No. So the whole idea is if you think data is necessary without which you cannot succeed, but it is not sufficient to succeed. And what is sufficient to succeed, in addition to data, are all the things that are called creativity in the marketing business. Ideas and innovation and talent and design. And those were basically being subsumed in a world that was all data-driven because, in effect, you begin to measure a spreadsheet. And the most important thought was this. If you look at some of the most valuable companies in the world, in Europe, two of the five most valuable companies in the European market are LMVH and Kering, which are basically fashion companies. In the United States, depending on the day, it's often Apple is one of the three most, yeah. which is a design company. Yeah, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft. <laughs> right. But what we're beginning to see is when you look at these businesses, most of these businesses are built on the underlying assumption that people choose with their hearts and they use numbers to justify what they just did. And the design and marketing business should be at the central of that because we create dreams. 
we combine data and imagination and ideas to make magic. And we were just looking at the data. And I said, look, if the business is going to be all that way, this is going to be no fun business. There's going to be no differentiation in this business. And if it can just be done by math, why should we even exist? I love that you brought up magic because that's at the bottom of those notes that I showed you. I'm trying to do this chronologically. I often get really excited. Then I jump from one point to another. I want to take the data piece for a second and then shift into a technology conversation. And I wrote at the beginning of the year as I was kind of making a facetious argument around the nature of being predictive in the first place. And, you know, my comment was a piece I wrote for Media Village that for 2020 and likely beyond is going to be about making sense of the world we're in. I feel like the decade prior was we were collecting so much data, so much information, and now we're drowning in it in a sense. Like we haven't really figured out how to use all of it, but it just exists. Do you think the fact that we have so much data becomes a proxy for doing the hard work of understanding it? Yes. So I quote in my book, or paraphrase, a very famous poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And the poem was called Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And there is a line there or a stanza that goes something like this. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards to shrink. Water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. That's because this particular boat is stuck in the sea where there's salt water. So I've paraphrased that or changed that to data, data everywhere, so much data we will sink. Mm. Data, data everywhere, please, who will help me think? And that's the opening chapter of my book. It's called Too Much Math, Too Little Meaning. We are overwhelmed with data. We don't need more data. We've got too much data. What we don't have is inside information and wisdom that we can extract from the data and then apply it to help people and bring up ideas. My book, the opening chapter says, how do we do that? It's not about collecting more data. It's figuring out, hey, even the data we're collecting, is it valid? Should we be answering questions that data can answer or should we be asking data-driven questions? And these fundamental things, which I then visit companies like American Express and a whole bunch of others who've learned how to basically extract insight from data and question and interrogate data, including realizing that a lot of the data they were collecting was stupid. (laughs) How difficult is it to get organizations to admit that some of the stuff that they're capturing doesn't really matter to say, hey, you know what, this is kind of stupid or useless. It's getting easier and easier. First of all, I think most of the very senior people, as well as the middle level people in companies, are really, really smart. They just sometimes need a little spark to basically for them to speak up and say, what the hell is going on here? One of the big things I think that they have begun to sort of realize is that they've been investing a lot in data. They've been investing a lot in all these campaigns that supposedly move the business. But their results aren't getting any better. So they're saying, look, it looks like we're a patient in a hospital. The doctor is showing us the monitor, showing how well my campaigns and marketing is working. But the only person who seems to be getting fat is the doctor, and I seem to be getting weaker. This could be a metaphor for the self-help industry. (laughs) Yeah, for a lot of industries, right? Where (laughs) you think the motion is the blessing. They surround you with blinking lights and numbers and songs and sing-alongs, but you basically find yourself with empty pockets and barren heart. Yeah, it's interesting. I did an interview earlier in the year with a gentleman by the name of Orlando Wood who wrote a book called Lemon, and it talks about this left-right brain breakdown 
of how we think about advertising and, and marketing. And one of the things he cites in the book is that successful campaigns, and he's not the only person who's done this, but most recently I've, I've spent some time with him, that successful campaigns in advertising and marketing used to have a longevity to them. We used to live with characters and stories and ideas over a longer period of time. It was more based on creative storytelling rather than a word-focused, techno-focused type of campaign. And I'm curious if the technology in your mind and the data has made us more short-term in our thinking, and if that's driving how we're thinking about results on the other side. Is the tech and the data making us more impatient? It is. And it's not just the tech and the data that's making us impatient. It's the fact that we're living in a world where we have these little mobile devices that are notifying us every few seconds to look at things. And so we tend to be looking away. And what people say, once someone gets distracted, it takes a few minutes to get back. There's a gentleman called Cal Newport who wrote a book called Deep Work. And he basically really talks about the fact that one of the reasons why productivity is declining, despite the fact that there's all this technology, is we're basically now becoming reactors to the technology versus thinkers or controllers of our own time. And part of it is we're becoming increasingly impatient because we're sort of used to every 15 or 20 seconds, some kind of a notification burst. And so sitting for 10, 15 minutes without touching your phone feels like, oh my God, what's happening? Am I actually alive or dead? That's an interesting thing. I have jotted down here this idea of paradox where I feel like we're in this space battling between a few things. There's this idea of being effective versus being efficient, this yes. idea of being productive versus being busy. How do you see that playing out? Because it seems like that's one of the central conceits that we're sort of dealing with, right? That people are misplacing this busyness for a sense of being productive. What is started to happen, there is a chapter in my book, which is very popular, which you read called Deepening Usage of Time, mm-hmm. which is how do you actually control time? One of the key things that I talk about in controlling time is don't do the following two things. Don't believe that activity is productivity. We believe activity is productivity. That's pretty ridiculous. That's number one. The other one is don't allow your inbox to control your day. So what we now do is we let our inboxes control our day, which means we don't control our day. It's these random emails that we get that controls our day. And at the same time, because we are reacting to emails or running from meeting to meeting, we think that that actually is productivity, and it isn't. And so the idea is at the end of it, if you haven't created either an idea, a body of work, help somebody, you've actually wasted your time. It's sort of like you feel good at the current time, but you don't create anything. It's one of those strange things that we end up doing. It almost sounds like we've weaponized the to-do list. There used to be the post-its on the wall. You'd have this list of three, four, five, however many things you wanted to get through on a given day. And now it seems like we're constructing to-do list in midstream as the inputs come into us. Exactly. And so what is starting to happen is we've got sort of used to it. The other one is telling people how busy we are, we think is a sign of status. Oh, we're so busy. And my whole stuff is a sign of status is when you control your calendar and you say, I can meet anybody whenever I want to meet them because I control my time. The more you tell me how busy you are, the more I basically say you don't have any power. 
You're just a little dog running around in circles. We're kind of chasing our tails in that respect, right? To keep the dog analogy going. Very early in the book, you talked about this ability to make a choice about the type of technology you want to use, when you want to use it, and how organizations that try to make those choices for you are less likely to work or be successful. And I wanted to explore that a little bit to try to make a link between kind of general corporate culture, which is somewhat by its nature, tends to want to control, and then the technology that wants to maybe also control. Because in a sense, we can have this argument around productivity and busyness, but many organizations, as the technology becomes more of a tool to monitor employees, are using it to assess just how busy you are, right? So we're kind of, I feel, building maybe a little bit of a trap. I'm curious where you kind of fall on that or has that kind of come up in your study, this kind of technology of surveillance for workers? It has. And I begin a chapter talking about how without us knowing it, everything is being measured. Like, for instance, when I get to work and I know the people you know who run our facilities and they basically said, hey, you know, there's someone who comes to work who sort of scans in and then 10 minutes later scans out. So they think they've come to work, but then they scan out and then they're gone. So in effect, the turnstile system downstairs measures how long you are at work and people have figured out this person is coming only for 10 minutes a day, right? (laughs) Clearly, they monitor emails. There are things at Amazon that monitor hand movement to see how fast you're moving. You know, if you're a driver in a car or in a truck, they measure your speed. They measure how you're turning left and right. And that's all fine for insurance and productivity and other reasons. But as a human being, I am more than the emission and output of my numbers. You can't pin me down by numbers. When somebody basically says, I understand you completely, you don't want to talk to them because A, it's impossible that anyone can understand any human being completely. Most human beings can't understand themselves completely. And B, you have no sense of context and references to what and why happened. So again, my stuff is, it's not don't collect the data. But then think about other kinds of things, which is, in the end, does business exist to turn out money or does this business exist to make people's lives better, of which customers are one, but talent is the other one, a very important one, while making money? In effect, if you just think of everybody as a production unit, you will eventually go out of business. In the early, fine, it'll be fine, but otherwise you'll go out of business. And that's a key part where I'm basically saying just because it's measurable doesn't mean you have to measure it. And not everything that can be measured actually has meaning. It's interesting that a lot of the book wrestles with this idea of balance. How do we strike the right tone, the right space between that meaning, the math, telling a story, using these tools effectively? We're in this kind of a push and pull that doesn't need to be a battleground, but it sometimes can feel that way. I'm curious about what degree you feel that there can be a balance. You know, automatically when we hear the word balance, we start to think 50-50. Maybe that's not the right mix. Like, is there a way to make these worlds coexist that serve both the human element and the business element in places where they might diverge? Yeah. So what basically happens is I truly believe that successful businesses, and I prove in the book time and time again, integrate the two. 
But integrating the two, as you rightfully say, is not balancing 50-50 on every single circumstance. If there are certain things, there are certain things that basically the math probably dominates by 75 to 80%. Like, for instance, a profit and loss statement, data about customers. If it's science, I would say the math should dominate 90% or 95% because science is basically reality, facts, and figures, and it's not imagination. If it's, on the other hand, building relationships, inspiring people, motivating people, the storytelling, the culture, and the talent, probably 75 to 80%. So all I'm basically saying at any particular stage is look at what we're trying to do. If I were to be in the media side of my business, which is where we place media, I would basically say there's a lot of creativity in that business, but it's probably a third. And two-thirds of it is basically about math, data, costs, and spreadsheets. On the other hand, in the advertising and communication kind of the business, it might be the other way around. It's still very data-driven, but we're building stories, so it needs to be the other one. And combining those is what we eventually have as a result. It's one of the reasons I basically sort of say, for instance, because people find it easier to deal with data, what is tending to happen is many HR departments, human relations departments, are actually becoming so data-driven that they're looking at everybody's a production unit. They get all the numbers dotted, both because it allows them to compare and contrast, but also that they have a paper trail so they can't get sued and they're ready for legal compliance and things like that. All of that is important. I'm not saying that isn't important. But whether you have a person who will grow in your company or not grow in the company is also built on something called talent development. It's basically built on coaching. It's basically built on storytelling. So again, even in an HR department, if you don't have both employee resources and talent department, you don't have both, you won't have actually a business. If you just talk about stories and a whole bunch of other stuff, then you won't have the ability to find out whether you have true diversity. Are you following the law? So you need both. And that's what I keep telling people is both is complicated, both is hard, but both is why there is human beings because human beings are messy. And both is why you are a leader. So whenever a leader tells me I'm making all my decisions based on numbers, I say, good, I hope you're going to get a new job because you're not needed anymore. A machine can do it. Get out of here. I think it's very interesting in the way in which we define science and modernity and all of those things, because some of this is also, it sounds like a challenge for resources. And I think the application of something can be very data-driven, math-driven, very focused, but then the choices we're making as to where to allocate resources and where to put our attention, those things, even in science, could speak more to other types of biases, right? Is the reason why we have Viagra and we might not have other things. I'm curious about how even in the space where the functionality of the thing could be very quantitative engineering, but yet we're still making choices that are human-based. There are two areas I'd look at it. The first area, basically, are when leaders make decisions where they bring in an understanding of people and humans and decide to make investments that don't make any sense in the short run or understand where technology is going or understand what's going on. So a company that basically saw the future before most people did is a company called Adobe. And Adobe saw the cloud and basically said, you know, we're not going to sell shrink wrap, $400 Photoshop. We're going to basically make it available 
as a subscription on the cloud. And in doing so in the early years, they significantly hurt their revenue. Now they're a $350 plus stock. They used to be a $30 stock after they hurt their revenue seven, eight years ago. So at that particular stage, the CEO and the leadership team made a decision saying the future is going to be cloud-based. IBM and Oracle didn't do it as much. This company is now worth more than those. And despite the fact that the numerical businesses are telling us not to do that, our belief is that this is where people will want in the future and this is what technology will enable in the future. Therefore, we must do it. Similarly, despite the fact that they're going to lose money for a few years, Disney decided to basically double down on streaming with Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and buying a majority stake in Hulu. They took back a lot of the licenses from Netflix. In the near term, they're going to lose money in their direct division for two to three, four years. The stock market didn't punish them. The stock market actually drove their stock up. So when people basically say, if I make a decision that is hurtful in the short run, but bills in the long run, the stock market will punish me, not true. The stock market will punish you if you make a bad decision in the short run and the long run. And sometimes the decisions that you think you make for the long run, the market is basically saying are stupid. But in other cases, so what is there, which is when a leader basically, I keep telling a leader, hey, most of your choices that will make you a leader are when you go adding something to the numbers and not just looking at the numbers. That's number one. So similarly, when you and I basically make any decision, any human being makes a decision. We make a decision where we use some of the numbers to justify certain things. Like, what can I afford? What can't I afford? You know, how much can I borrow? What can't I borrow? And then we go for basically what our heart tells us. And usually that tends to be something that makes no financial sense and no practical sense, but it just makes us happy. And so my thing is, if it wasn't true, then why would companies like Mercedes or Lexus or BMW exist? Everybody would just basically buy a Toyota Camry. Toyota Camrys are incredible cars. Once you get to a Toyota Camry, the incremental dollars you pay for other cars outside of maybe like a Tesla, which is now electric, which you don't have, is not that meaningful. So logically, you shouldn't be doing that. Logically, you shouldn't be having a watch. Why even lust after a Rolex? You should be wear a swatch and just use your phone. Yeah. <laughs> right? So my stuff is every single moment of every single day, life is telling us that it's not just data. So I said, there's data all around you to say that there's no data. That means you don't understand data because you aren't even reading the data. It's funny you mentioned Toyota Camrys. Any of those types of Camry, Accord, they all look so much alike. And maybe... Yeah, they're they're, they're basically, they're completely functional. You look at them and you basically don't know which one it is. And they're great cars, but they go out of their way to basically say we are benign and bland. Thank you very much. Yeah. I don't know what it's like in Chicago, but here in New York, I haven't owned a car in 19 years, but I'm obviously in New York, you see a lot of cars. They're all the exact same color too. They're all this kind of like pewter gray. (laughs) Pewter gray, hazy silver, and then like, I wish I was white. Those are definitely the three colors. I don't know how people find their cars in parking garages anymore because they all look exactly alike. So that's a great and funny point on Camrys. This idea of meaning, I want to jump back into that because it feels like, and it's going to be a little bit of my philosophy minor coming out, we're in this existential crisis in this moment. So it feels very post-World War II when you had like Sartre and Camus and all these philosophers kind of coming out with this new way of taking in the world. And I think your book 
is part of what I'm seeing these data points, whether it's Davos or even the Milken Institute last year and any number of different organizations and authors that are trying to think about how to incorporate these ideas that are more based in meaning. How do we incentivize meaning? Everyone's talking about it, but how do we incentivize it in these organizations when it still seems as if they're going in that other direction, right? Like we talk still more about STEM than we do about the social sciences. In terms of training, how do we wrestle with these two realities? People like yourself, I think, are pushing for one thing, but organizations, I don't know if they've caught up. I think more and more organizations are in agreement. I think they're struggling to catch up, but more and more organizations are in agreement. The reason is, as I basically say, myself and other people, we use the tools of math and data to convince people that it's not about math and data. That was what I ended up doing. My whole stuff is I got to speak your language. Since you believe in math and data, let me show you with math and data, whether it's productivity of companies, retention, stock prices, that these things work. But then the issue is, how do we actually do it? How do we change our training and talent programs? How do we incentivize people in different ways? And that is really, really hard because that is getting people to think differently. And that's the reason why one of the chapters I wrote is called Upgrading Your Mental Operating System. My basic belief is this. There are only two ways to change a company. You can change the people or you can upgrade people's mindsets. Everything else is a press release. So when someone does a major M&A transaction, what they're really doing is they're trying to bring in a whole bunch of new people and new skill sets, et cetera. When they lay off people, they're trying to basically say, hey, I got to get new people. Why not invest in training? Why not basically upgrade your people's mindsets? We spend so much of our time trying to figure out what we're eating and how we're exercising. We don't spend as much time thinking about how we're thinking and what we're putting in our minds. And part of it is this. This is a very simple way I ask people to do this. Number one is whatever you believe, can you build me a case for the exact opposite of what you believe? And if you can't, then I don't believe you actually believe what you believe because you haven't even thought about it. But once you build a case that's the exact opposite and you build a strong one, you eventually find a balanced answer to move forward because you realize that there's two ways of doing this, not just one. This idea of meaning, as I read the book and I've been following your rollout for the book and different things like that, I've noticed that there's so many anecdotes that you share with readers about your career, people who gave you opportunities, people who supported you those people still support you in your career. So how do you think, as we think about being more individualized, right? Like so much around measuring and data is very focused on individual achievement, but so much of your career has been based on working with others, being supported by others, being put in roles, maybe before you were quote unquote ready, people took chances, right? Compare and contrast that reality to because it seems that there should be more of that. You're proof positive. Yes. It's more meaning as group versus individual. The thing that I always tell people is the most successful folks will tell you that they succeeded because of a combination of four different things, of which only one was driven by themselves. And that one tends to basically be a combination of drive, determination, and discipline. That 
people who basically work hard come back from whatever. So that's one part of it. The other three is some people will mention as luck, which is you're at the right place at the right time. But the other two are that you align with the trend. So a lot of what my book says is, look, this is where the future is going. I built a big part of my success by trying to figure out where the future was and aligning with it. But the last one, which is often the most important one, is all the people who have helped you, either people who have been your bosses, your colleagues who you've worked with, and most importantly, the people who have worked in your team for you. We underappreciate how much of business and how much of success is not the individual. So a big part of this book, you know, when I finished the book, one of the feedbacks I got before the book was finally edited was that there weren't enough stories about me. So I said, okay, I got to add some stories. I said, your voice is there, but there are not enough stories. But I said, this book is not about me. It's a book is about for the reader. The book is about where business is going. The book is about where the future is going. This book isn't about advertising, marketing, or myself. So why should there be more of me? And they said, no, there should be a little bit more of you. So that's how I basically said, okay, the way I will actually talk about me is talk about the people who helped me. So yes, they are my stories, but there are stories of their other stories who have helped me. My thing is when you reach out and you tell people that you succeeded because of other people, people think better of you. If you basically say it's I, me, mine, they think worse of you. So by doing the right thing, you actually not only tell the truth, but you are better regarded. Yeah, no one gets anywhere by themselves. And that's, again, why you know there's this entire chapter about good meetings, why you should have more meetings versus fewer meetings, and why the meetings should be human meetings, where you're talking to people face-to-face and not necessarily gathering around machines looking at screens. Those are the meetings we don't like, but meetings where you can help people, where you can have conversations. Those are what we need. And that's the soul of a business to a great extent. Because my belief is if a business has no people, it's not a business. It basically is a robot. Speaking of things that at least robots don't do, there's a large section in the book about the turd on the table. Yeah. And I really love this example because I tell folks I'm a teller of hard truths. And I think When I read that chapter, when I read those sections, it was very much in that vein. The turd on the table, tell me about that concept and is it rewarded? Because I always want to get back, it's one thing to talk about the behavior, but then it's another thing if that behavior is not incentivized. You see that in whistleblower culture. They're calling out those turds on the table and sometimes it's not working out in their favor. So tell me more about that and how do we incentivize hearing hard truths or pointing out that turd on the table? Here's the way it is. The reason that I came up with the concept of the turd on the table, which in a better way of saying is elephant in the room or speaking hard truths, as you basically say, but I said, we often gather around in rooms and we look at something in the middle of the table and all of us imagine that it's some sort of warm brownie, but it's actually a piece of SHIT. Yeah. <laughs> but not, we need to talk about it. And my belief is, it's not in my book, but a line I've come up with is diverse faces are not the same as diverse voices. I've seen around the world, rightfully, people are trying to get more diversity into the room, which I believe is absolutely essential because diversity is good for business, but only if everybody who's in the room can actually speak up. So one of the key things is The ability to tell truth to power is very important. And I write about how I used to do it. 
But I also then build a case on how management should allow it, as well as how other young people, when I was younger in my career, how we could do it without losing our jobs. Mm -hmm. And why is this important? And management of companies are beginning to realize it's important. So in the book, I talk about companies like Wells Fargo, where inside the company, it was very clear that they were starting to open fake accounts to make the numbers and people knew it. But it took a long time for the whistleblowers to whistleblow. But eventually, the whistleblowers blew outside, and Wells Fargo has not been the same for years. This is their third CEO. The day I heard about Boeing, I was absolutely convinced that Boeing knew that there were problems with seven oh, yeah. And that was, again, you're looking at massive wealth destruction because you aren't allowing people to speak up. Speaking up is the best thing you can do, both as a manager and as a boss, because if you don't, you have two big problems. One is huge problems go from being festering to blowing up, which is terrible. The other is you stop attracting talent or stop having ideas. Because if you build a place where people can speak up and share with their voices what they want to say, it's more likely to be an innovative place. It's more likely to be a place that attracts diversity. It's a place where the talent is willing to ride out problems because they like the culture. So to me, not allowing speaking up is destroying a company. Allowing speaking up is good. So my stuff is, it's good for the company, so we should incentivize that. And how to incentivize that is what I talk about in the business. And you know, a big part of my book is about leadership. And I believe, you know, when I have my last chapter called Leading with Soul, I believe everybody is a leader. It's just we've forgotten how to lead. We've just started to do two things. Look at numbers and like read them from a screen. And then the rest of it is we basically curate our fake Instagram and LinkedIn lives. And then the rest of the time we say, what the hell happened to us? That Boeing example is shocking. And it's funny, and maybe it's because I'm a cynic. The first time it broke, I was like, there has to be something going on here because there's no trust that these folks will do the right thing. And, you know, it's a case I've followed for a long time since they halted the plane and started looking at the root of that was built in, you know, an FAA that has less authority than before. Like, again, I'm always very focused on where we're putting our resources. And then you see these awful results. So I think the Boeing example is a very timely one in the sense that many people within the organization that were engineers working on this plane knew that this new system had problems. And yet their voices either are not heard or not heard in time or any number of things. And it's been unbelievable what's happened to that company in the interim since this happened. Exactly. A couple more things I want to jump to, just this idea of magic that started. And I like how throughout the course of the book, even in the title, we're using language like soul. You're talking about this way of meaning, soul, really changing the tenor and the tone of the language that you wouldn't normally find in a business publication, which, yes. you know, putting on my branding hat, I want to think about this idea of magic, which I use all the time. There's a statement I'm going to paraphrase that magic is just the friction between vision and reality, right? That the work in between those two states is really what we call magic. So it's not a supernatural thing as much as it's just these forces that are happening between all of us as human beings. I want to know in your mind how we can push 
these ideas forward more from a branding perspective. So you don't get the recoil when you walk into organizations and talk about these types of issues, right? And using very, I think, basic, simple language that everyone can really, at the very least, understand what they mean. I think the first thing that I tell people is, let us talk in English. What I say is, can we have a conversation where we don't use the following eight words? And here are some of the eight words. Mm -hmm. Let's not use the word platform, disruption, personalization, scale. And if you actually look at most presentations, if you remove these eight words, you have nothing. You have nothing. You have the and e. (laughs) So my whole thing is, Let's say you and I were having a conversation in a bar or having a conversation at a coffee shop. What would that conversation be like? Which would be a meaningful conversation. You would find out that that conversation would actually be jingo-free and would be about things like meaning and purpose. And why that was important is the three words that I use is the following, which is what is your purpose? What is your company's purpose? That's number one. Number two is connection. What do you feel connected to? How is your company connected to something broader? How can you increase your connectivity with your clients, talent, and people? The third one basically is growth. How do you grow? How do you grow as a human being? How do you grow as a person? How does your company grow? And whenever I basically say, can we have this conversation, but give me this conversation, both growth, connection, and purpose, not just for your company, but for yourself, you begin to have these soul-like conversations. That's a perfect way to put it. We need a lot more soul in our business, in our lives, because we're no longer in this space. I feel like when I was starting my career, we talked about your home life versus your business life or your professional life. And I don't think we can make those sort of distinctions anymore. I think we're living in a space where we either bring our whole selves to what we do or it won't work. Exactly. I want to use the time that we have left with the sections of the show called Off the Dome, where I'm just going to ask you a couple of quick questions. And I want to hear just your first inclination. So for Off the Dome, I want to ask you, even though we've tried to emphasize the personal perspective of our lives, we are still using devices. We're conducting this interview through devices, so they are important. What has been the most meaningful device that you've used in your career? A book, a physical book. So physical books is where I've learned the most from and writing into a physical book. So for me, it's been always been a words on paper. You saw my notes. So, you know, I'm a note on papers kind of guy. This next question might actually be a function of what you've already answered, but I'm going to go for it anyway. What do you think is the most important thing for an artist to have or to be able to use? Because when you wrote this book, I could see there's a artist maybe inside all of us, but I think you definitely wrote this from a perspective of an artist. I'm curious to hear what you think about that. I basically believe that the two things that you want, but basically sort of as an artist, is the ability to try to do new things every day and invest in learning new things but most importantly, to discover your voice and sing it, speak it, write it, paint it. When you're unplugging, when we're kind of getting away from devices and work and all that kind of stuff, what's your activity of choice? Book, music, movie, or something outdoors? Or something I didn't name? 
basically, my unplugging is two things. It's a book when I feel lazy and I swim when I don't. Okay. <laughs> Swimming is fair. I'm not that buoyant, but I, I love water. <laughs> perfect. That was perfect. So now I want to get us to the drop. The drop is where each of us will kind of share something with the listeners that they should check out, have on their radar. And that could be anything. I usually don't give people a, a ton of guidance as to what the drop should be. So I got mine. You can give me yours. Who do you want to go first? You go first, because then I'll know how to do this. Okay, it drops very easy. My drop this week happens to be a book. I feel like I've been doing a lot of books, but I've read this very recently, and it's called Girl, Woman, Other, and it's by Bernadine Evaristo. I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that correctly. It just won the Booker Prize 2019. I picked it up, not because it won the Booker Prize, but it was in one of my Twitter streams. I'm always finding things on Twitter. It was a book that really touched me. It kind of details this intergenerational story of Black women in the UK, various points in their lives. And I have a lot of family in the UK, so it kind of touched me on a personal level. I understood these stories. I found it was very poetic, very touching, a great book. I read it in like two days, which doesn't mean it's simple. It's actually a pretty complex narrative, but it was just so arresting that I, I had to finish this. So that's my drop. Is called Girled Woman Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Got it. So mine, though it may be dated by a few days because it won the Oscar, but I've been always recommending people to go see Parasite, which is the Korean movie, to try to, after you see that, try to, if you can afford it, it's about, I think, $9 a month. While people spend a lot of time looking at Disney Plus and Netflix, there's an amazing streaming channel called Criterion. It's the Criterion Channel, and it has all the greatest movies in the world between probably, you know, 1920 and 1980, 1990, with some more modern ones. And a lot of those are international and global. And we are living in a world that's global, so you should be exposed to that. And that sensibility comes from things like Parasite as well as Criterion, because they speak to both a global perspective on a human condition, which is why Parasite did so well. It's a... Korean take on a very human condition. I loved Parasite. I thought it was clearly the best movie I saw last year. I would echo that sentiment. This has been great. I appreciate you taking the time with me. Thank you for inviting me. Hopefully your listeners will think that this was worth it and they don't drop you or me. Oh, definitely not. This is a conversation as I was telling people we were having it. They were very excited. There's a lot of advanced buzz when this one comes out. So I want to thank you again for being on The Deep Dive. Perfect. And hopefully people will go buy my book because that way I'll be a less of a starving artist. It's been a pleasure having Rashad Tabakawala join me on The Deep Dive. We discussed the impact of companies relying increasingly on data at the expense of their soul or a focus on their human elements and what this trend means for business specifically and our society in general. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.